in a word of prayer and we'll get going. Father, thanks so much for a gorgeously beautiful morning and for bringing us out safely to Your house to study Your Word. Open our hearts as we study this topic. Um, we bark on a new one here. And uh, guide our discussions this next few weeks. And thank You for this time. In Christ's name, Amen. Alright, we're going to be starting a new doctrinal series. Actually, there's going to be two of them put together. And those are fancy words up there. One of them means the doctrine of man. And we're going to talk about the origins of man, things like that. And the other one is the doctrine of sin. And these sort of go together, doctrine of man, doctrine of sin. And uh, we're going to look about six weeks on each one of these. And then this fall, we're going to start the doctrine of salvation, which will be a good study. And that will go a little longer. Some of the definitions um, and what we'll be looking at in each one of these topics, when you look at anthropology, it comes from the Greek anthropos, man. And it's the doctrine of man. It talks about humanity. It talks about his origins. We're going to look at man's origins. Today we're going to really spend some time looking at the origin of man. We also look at his nature and responsibilities. What does it mean to be human? What is true humanity? And uh, what did God originally design man to do and be? That's another question. We're going to look at his fall, man's fall and his present condition. And this will sort of dovetail a little bit into the doctrine of sin. Um, talks about the fall of man as Genesis 3 and what we're like today. And then we're going to look at destiny. We're going to spend some time looking at heaven and hell, the destinies of humanity. Um, under the doctrine of sin, we're going to look at what its definition is and origin. And some of these things we sort of glossed over in our discussions, but we'll hit them in a little bit more detail. We'll look at what the nature of sin is, what the consequences of sin is, and then look at how theologically different sins are categorized, like original sin, personal sin, things like that. So that's sort of where we're going to be headed for the next 12 to 13 weeks, give or take. So with that, let's look at the doctrine of man. We're going to start at the beginning point, the origin of man. Where do we come from? This is a, by the way, this is a very important topic. Um, anybody who watches TV and the Discovery Channel and the History Channel and whatever else out there, um, they have a very defined view of man. In fact, there's a, uh, I think it was an article that came out today or this last week where they said man is a, life is a lot older than they thought it was. And they push it back billions of years. Um, they also found a, supposedly a common ancestor to humans and monkey, some fossilized bone. Huh? No. Oh, the link? Yeah, that's the link. I saw that. Yeah. And uh, the world out there is convinced that we've been around for billions of years. Billions. Life has been here for billions. And, uh, you know, we're the end product of a bunch of natural processes. We're just an accident in the cosmic scheme of things. And it's an amazing thing how nature has evolved. And it's interesting when they talk, they say, well, nature decided this and nature decided that. And, of course, nature is an impersonal process. How can it decide anything? But atheistic evolution, and this is really one of the predominant worldviews today, basically says there is no God. If there is, it's irrelevant whether that God exists or not. Um, we are just merely the end product of an evolutionary chain of events. And that's where we are. We came from an amoeba. We came from simpler life forms. And we worked our way up. And one day we were able to think and determine that we came from amoebas. And uh, it's the dominant view. I mean, you go to any college campus, you go to any college class, non-Christian, and uh, 
if you make the statement that you're a creationist, you're laughed off the campus. Um, I remember in the last presidential election, people were actually appalled that a national um, candidate, Sarah Palin, would actually believe in a creation. It was an appalling thing to people that she could be so Neanderthal in her understanding to actually believe in creation. But it's interesting, when you look at the history of this whole topic, prior to Charles Darwin, nobody believed in evolution. Um, everybody believed we created. Um, they might argue over how and when and all of that, but no one really said that we were the end product of evolutionary processes. We were a created being by God. God created. And one of the interesting things, and I don't have time to develop all of this, if we had a class on origins, we could do that, but science is sort of coming back full circle now and saying the intelligent design, that's the latest thing, where science has really determined that we are really too complex to have been you know, the end product of evolution. There had to be some intelligence behind it. And they give that some name like intelligent design. Um, they don't want to go so far as to say it's a god or anything like that, but they want to say it's intelligent design because they've come to the conclusion that we're just way too complex to have been the product of evolution. But that's really the dominant worldview when you look at the world out there today. And uh, this is really, this, it goes without saying when you, read the, when you watch the History Channel, Discovery Channel, the underlying assumption is we are the product of an evolutionary chain of events. That's the underlying worldview. They don't even consider anything else. And what's interesting is you see the fights over creationism where you've got school systems that won't even consider the possibility of intelligent design or a creator. That's just dismissed out of hand. And it's interesting, you know, when you do that, see, see here's the thing. Prior to Charles Darwin, God was a reality. Now he's no longer reality. You don't need God. In fact, um, I was listening on, I think it was Moody Radio, they got a new organization out, um, atheists trying to organize and, and, and really remove God from any kind of uh, thought process in, in society. They actually have a church that's an anti-God church. Go figure that one out. And then there's uh, the guys who come along with the new atheism. I don't know if you ever heard that. You can look it up on the internet, new atheism. And they're not only, they've not only said God does not exist, they said it's even dangerous for people to believe that God exists. So what they do is they would say, we are dangerous people because we believe God exists. We're dangerous. And we need to be cured of this idea of there's a God out there. And they would trace all of society's ills to the fact that there are people who actually believe in God. All right? This is, this is where the, the, the world's heading, folks. Get rid of God. Because if you get rid of God, you get rid of a lot of other things, don't you? Morality. By the way, you know, you know, you know that I'm a World War II sort of history buff. And uh, I've watched a lot of videos and a lot of um, uh, documentaries from that time. And I've visited the places. I've visited Dachau. I've visited Mauthausen, one of the worst camps. I've visited Buchenwald. And um, you stand there and you, you see these camps, or what's left of them, and you wonder how in the world anybody could you know, incarcerate millions of people in these camps. I've not been to Auschwitz yet. I want to go there someday. And, and to think that they actually had cars that come in and they marched the people right off the cars, right into the gas chambers, right into the ovens. It was a assembly line murder. And you ask, how could that happen? What could cause a society to do that? 
And the answer is, if you think about it, it's just the end product of this thinking. It's the natural consequence of thinking there is no God. Survival of the fittest, right? And that's how Hitler sold it. The Germans were superior people. These were inferior human beings. We're doing humanity a service by getting rid of them. Like you would kill a rat. And that's how people see Jews and seeing gypsies and seeing these what they call antisocial people. They saw them as things to get be gotten rid of. And it's the end product, it's all it is is the logical end of thinking like this. If there's no God, survival of the fittest, we need to kill these people. By the way, you know it started with the handicapped people in Europe. Did you know that? I visited Hartheim Castle, which is a beautiful castle, and they this is a sanitarium for people that were ill. And they would take them in there and they would kill them. If you were crippled, if you were disabled, if you couldn't walk, they would kill you. You, you could not contribute to society. You were not fit to survive. And they would kill you. Um, this is going along with what you're saying. Um, I don't know how you guys feel, but about a few weeks ago, John Dunano got taken out of the, um, the country and uh, transported to Germany. So I met him. Um, I went over to his house um, uh, that Sunday before he was attending on Monday. And um, I was able to talk to him. And I've always wanted to meet this guy. And yeah, okay, he, he was able to uh, go over there and that. But I talked to him and, and, and he said that he was a survivor of a concentration camp and that um, he was, we didn't say anything, I didn't say anything to him about being guarded or anything like that. <laughs> Because I, I've always known in my heart that the man is innocent. If, if he was a guard, he was just following orders. The guy was 89 years old. The photographers were all over the place. They wanted to talk to me. I told them to leave me alone and leave him alone. But yet, he got taken out Monday. I was there Monday, too, when the photographers were there. But I had to go to work. And I had a bracelet, you know, one of these, these bracelets that you wear? It said, um, I kept it on my arm for a long time. And I gave it, I gave one of them to him when I went back there on Monday to keep the pig. So I gave the guy four hogs, and it must have really hurt because I heard the spine crack. It was either my spine or his. And he wanted to sit down, and I think it was probably his. I, did, I forgot that he had a spinal problem. But we just talked in his living room, and he was the nicest guy I've ever met. And I was all choked up when I seen him. He doesn't know me from a hole in the ground. But I got to meet him finally, and I hope to God that he's found innocent. Because when he was in Israel, they couldn't find him guilty of anything. They set him free. So now he's back over in Germany, and he'll probably die over there. But his wife is, um, says that um, if he's found it was an interesting time of the, you know, history. And, you know, when you look at all of the things that happened there, there were some that followed orders. But uh, if you talk to some of the people that were from that time, they were slowly convinced over many years that this was 
evil things to get be getting rid of. And um, they bought into it. They bought into it. And uh, those who were in charge of the death camps, they just saw these as human trash to be disposed of. And that's how it happens. And it's the end product of an evolutionary design. See, if, there's, if you're not created by God, if there's nothing special about you that's any more special than about your dog or your cat, then what is it for you to die, right? It doesn't matter. You're, as somebody says, you're protoplasm on the way to manure. It doesn't matter. There's nothing special. And the Bible says that God created humanity special. We're going to look at that. You're going to say... Um, even though in secular academia, it is this that they are pushing and we know that. Um, over the five years, well, longer than that, but five years at LCC teaching and prior to that, into that at Oberlin, where I taught classes on this or that theological topic, I always, in both cases, have students who are just exhaling with joy that somebody who, you know, has this education and who is a professor can, at the same time, teach in a way that makes it clear. And I never come right out and say it, but it's mm -hmm. the way I say what I say that they come to me afterwards, I mean this, that, or the other one does, and say, are you a Christian, or I sure appreciate what you said, or, and, and the same was true in Oberlin, even though Oberlin is more pagan, you know, its culture is, than the LCC culture. Even so, in most cases, they drink it up, they love it, and so, the, the academy is pushing this and largely succeeding at their thrust because the students, by and large, either believe it from the jump or are afraid to speak up and are thinking maybe they are archaic and therefore they should move forward. Mm -hmm. So, But then there's that handful that are still left that realize this is a lie and thank God for Professor Dyson. Yeah. There's some that, that see it for what it is. But when you look at academia, you look at the majority worldview. That's right. It's all evolutionary. It's all evolutionary. So how do Christians respond to this? Well, they came up with, an inner, they came up with the middle ground. They call it, we call it theistic evolution. What is that? Well, they say, well, God used natural laws and processes to evolve man. So there's intelligence behind it. There's an intelligence design. But that design was orchestrated by God and uh, played out by God over many millions of years to produce it. So you can have your evolution and your Bible at the same time. Now, I would suggest that this is, this is a contradiction. All right? And we're going to talk about that. Why would God take millions of years to do something He could do in an instant in time? He could speak the world into existence. Why can't He speak a human body into existence? doesn't make any sense. There's no, and then, by the way, there's no evidence. You, know, you realize how bad the evidence is for evolution? There isn't any. They find a few bones and all of a sudden they find a missing link. Well, that doesn't mean anything. Where are all the missing links? They can't find any missing links. And any evolutionist worth his salt will understand that, that you have whole life forms. That, they just appear out of nowhere almost. And they're there. There's no intermediate forms. I mean, this is not a class on that. 
But when you look at the evidence for evolution, it, it, there isn't any ev evidence for it. Other than you refuse to believe that God exists, therefore you have to have some other way that we got here. And that's the only other way. It's an idol. And, and by the way, evolution is a religion. You realize that? They talk about the science of evolution. There's no science in evolution. They don't have any proof. They can't reproduce it. Anybody reproduce it? I mean, they got a bunch of people, you know, putting uh, electrical charges through gases in a laboratory and they come up with a couple of amino acids and say, well, that's how life created. Well, I'll tell you what, it's a far cry from two amino acids to what you are. It's a long ways. Mammoth. That's sort of cool. Yeah. Can they do that? Yeah, they could probably do that. What this does is allows a Christian to be respectable in academic circles and yet be a Christian. Now, if you remember, I've said it often in the class here, whenever you take the Bible and you mix it with something else, which one loses? The Bible all of the time. It never wins. Whenever you try to take Scripture and accommodate it with human understanding and human reasoning, the Bible always loses. And that's just the way it is. And what happens with people who believe this, the Bible loses. The Bible is, is twisted to accommodate scientific reasoning and you miss what the Bible really says. Theistic evolution is an attempt to have both and you can't have both. When you look at theistic evolution, there, there's, and again, this is not a class on apologetics. This is a, sort of an overview here. Um, Marshall, um, I forget his last name, does a class, what's it? Whitehead. Whitehead. Marshall Whitehead has a whole class on this, on apologetics. Um, this is not really a class on that. This is an overview. But there are reasons that we reject theistic evolution. For example, when you look in Genesis, Genesis says that man's origin started on dry ground, right? God breathed, made man of the dust of the ground. Evolution says you started out in water somewhere, swimming around, and you sort of crawled your way out, or our ancestor did, and decided to be cool to have an arm and a leg, and decided this or that, and the, and the next thing you know, here we are millions of years later. All right? So you have two different, you have a difference there. Um, it's interesting when you look at Genesis... Birds are created before insects. And yet, in evolution, it says insects came first. Why? They're a simpler life form. They came first, then the birds came. But look at the order of creation in Genesis 1, and what do you have? You have the God creating the birds and then creating all the creeping things. It's a difference. In Genesis, birds and fish are created together. In evolution, fish come before birds, right? Insects, fish, birds. But that's not the way it says in Genesis. In fact, Genesis has the whole creation account all backwards. Entities reproduce after their kind. This is one of the rules of genetics. You don't take a cat and a goat and get something. They, you can't interbreed cats and goats. You can interbreed within species, but not across species. There's a wall between that. And that's what God created. When in the beginning, God said, let them reproduce after their kind. Alright? So there's a wall. Adam says, uh, or the Bible says, Adam was created from the dust of the ground. Evolution says he came from a monkey or a pre-humanoid life form that we're all commonly related to. 
Woman came from man's side. Evolution says woman developed along with man. Why, why did evolution decide that sexual reproduction was a good thing? You ever think of that? Wouldn't it be better if you could just cut off a finger and plant it and grow a new per person? Where did the sexes come from? Why only two? Why not three or four or five or six? Evolution can't answer that. Evolution can't answer that question. But the Bible says very clearly that God created them male and female. Well, you know, there's the whole transgender fluid thing now where there are more than two sexes these mm -hmm. days. Yeah, you can go from one to the other. Yeah. By the way, just, just as an aside, you're not... When somebody says, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body or I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, that's baloney. You realize that. God created you the way you are. That's, that's idiocy. But Man was originally a vegetarian. You know that? God created us to eat plants. Why did God create all the plants? He created them for, as food for the animals, right? So we were originally created as a vegetarian. Um, evolution says we would go around and clunk things on the head and eat them. Cannibalistic. Here's, the, here's, here's really the, the one thing. What is the engine of evolution? What makes, what makes evolution work? Survival of the fittest. So if you're, there's something surviving that is fit, what, what does that also imply? There's something that's not fit that dies, right? Now, what did the Bible say about sin? When did death enter the world? When did death come upon the creation? When Adam sinned. So prior to Adam, there was no death. If there is no death, there can be no survival of the fittest. If there's no survival of the fittest, there can be no evolution. Here's the point, folks. You believe the Bible or you don't. You understand that? You believe that the Bible says that we were created by God in six literal days or you don't believe that. It's as simple as that. You can't have both things. And when it comes to the scripture, you've got to decide whether the Bible is true or human theory is true. And by the way, just so you know, the entire fossil record, all of the stuff that we see, can be easily explained by a global flood. Easily. In, a global flood. In fact, um, at the end of this class, and prior to the commencement of the other one, I'm going to be gone for three weeks on vacation, and I'm going to try to con Marshall and to coming here and doing a three-week series on the flood. He does that. And to talk about the universal flood, the global flood. And the evidence is for the global flood. And here's the problem. You know, what happens when it comes to the Bible is people pick up the Bible and say, well, we got a... Boy, Genesis 1 through 3, that's a tough one to swallow. That's got to be allegory. That's got to be poetry. That's got to be metaphor. That can't be history. So we need to explain it in terms of archetypes and pictures and, you know, the, the archetypes and all that kind of stuff. Um, and pictures and, 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 you know, mythology. Well, where do you start believing the Bible? Do you start believing in Genesis 1-1 or do you pick it up somewhere along the line? Where you start actually believing what it says. And why would you, if you don't believe Genesis 1, then why would you believe Genesis 12? Or Exodus, for that matter. Where do you start believing in the Bible? Where do you believe the Bible is true and where it isn't? We don't want that. Yeah. And we certainly don't want to sound like a bunch of Neanderthals that says, you know, 6,000 years ago, God created the heavens and the earth. Mm -hmm. 
We don't want to believe that. But what does the Bible say? About six, 7,000 years ago, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if He's an infinite God with infinite power, how long does it take Him to pull that off? An instant. An instant. He's an infinite God. He, he, he's infinite power. He can speak things in. How long is it going to take Him to create the new heavens and new earth? You ever think of that one? What do we do? Do we sit around somewhere in heaven for a few billion years while it evolves? What's it say? God speaks and the universe is dissolved. God speaks and there's a new heavens and new earth. And John doesn't say, you know, well, you know, we sat around heaven and for a few million years or billion years while God worked this thing out and evolved a new universe. God just spoke it into existence. He's a God of infinite power. He doesn't need evolution. You don't need it. It's not necessary. People are enchanted by this idea, by improvement. Because we want to be better. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, the, the popular idea of evolution feeds that desire for us to have a better life, to be better people. I was also reading another article somewhere where if Darwin had the medical knowledge that we have today, he would have never written that. Well, he had never written his... Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I, I was telling you, I, I, you know, I like reading a book on anatomy. You know, just sort of fun to to read that kind. Of, that's the kind of stuff I do before I go to sleep. I read anatomy and stuff like that. And um, you know, this is sort of just you know your first level textbook. And those of you who are nurses or in any kind of medical field in here understand just how complex and wonderful the human body is. I was reading a chapter on you know how how your cells um, metabolize energy, and it's an amazing thing. They can't figure. Some of them, there's a several places in the book that well, we don't exactly know how this works. It just sort of does. All right. Now, where did I, where did nature come up with that? And then you look at the human eye and the wonders. You know, when when I got my laser surgery done, you know, it's like I, I did all the research on it. It's, it's an amazing thing how the human eye works. And there's something called irreducible complexity. You can't go beyond that without being blind. Why is it that our eyes work the way they do? Because somebody designed it to work that way. Yeah. You look at your body. You look at your body. I mean, I was reading somewhere where uh, many years ago they said there's only 13 ways in which you can die. Well, good night. You, you look at it, and this is you know why quite a ways back. You look at it today. There's so many things that could go wrong with you that to kill you that it's it's amazing. You know, it's a wonder you're walking around, actually. The wonder of it. And, you know, when, when Donna had her heart catheterization, I went and I read all about the heart. That's an amazing thing. You realize that. That thing bumps billions of times in your lifetime. I calculated for Adam how long it... You know, when you do the calculation for Adam, how many times his heart beat in his lifetime. And science can't come up with something even close to that. And the way it's structured and the way it repairs itself and the way it works and you look at that and you say, how can any idiot on the planet say that that's just evolved? It just evolved. It just happened to work out that way. Yeah, and, and, and then, you know, I was reading something about homeostasis. You know, how your body just maintains its life, basically. And the fluid balance and the electrolyte balance, you have to just you have to have just the right amount of calcium in your blood to work, or you don't work, you die. You have to have the right amount of potassium, the right amount of sodium, and there are regulators built in, and and how your bone absorbs and releases calcium at the right time, the right level to keep you alive, or you you die, you're dead. You're dead. You're dead. It's got to be the exact right amount. The, the electrolyte balance has to be just exact, or, or you die. And then, and then I was reading about you know the blood cells, an amazing thing. You look at a red blood cell, and do you know that of the 50 trillion cells that make up your body, 25 trillion are red blood cells. Half, half of the number of cells in your body are red blood cells, and. Um, that not only they are structured, the, the, the geometric shape of the red blood cell, the, the little disc, is just is the perfect shape to go through your veins. If it was a different shape, you would have blood clots and die. And what it does, it allows them to stack up and go through the capillaries. They're showing how this works, where you get them, they sort of stack like plates and they go through the capillaries. And, and if they said if it was any other size than that size, they would clog up and you'd die. Now, where did nature come up with that exact shape to work that way? 
Yeah, how many, how many, how many things die before nature fails? Well, let's try this design here. You know, we tried the cube, we tried the circle, that doesn't work. Let's try this other thing. And then each red blood cell has, what is it, 25 million um, hemoglobin molecules in it. And the hemoglobin molecule has a geometrical shape that allows it to capture oxygen. It's the geometrical shape. It's not the chemical composition. It's the geometrical shape of the actual molecule itself in three-dimensional space that allows it to capture an oxygen molecule. And it's engineered such that depending on how the level of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the fluid around it, it will either release or absorb oxygen or carbon dioxide. So in the lungs where you have a high oxygen pressure, oxygen is pushed into those molecules and it releases carbon dioxide. It gets to your cells and the carbon dioxide is higher so it releases the oxygen and absorbs the carbon. That's, it's all, folks, I was reading it. I'm just reading this, reading it. I'm just saying, how in the world can any idiot on the planet write this and say, well, isn't it wonderful how nature evolved this cell? And it's like, what? You can't. We're just understanding how it works, much less engineering the doggone thing. We could never engineer something like that. It's, a, it's an amazing thing that God created. Simple. And, and by the way, you realize that um, every second, every second, I think it's like 25 to 50 million new red blood cells are created in your body. Every second. To replace the ones that die every second. And if you're in a higher altitude, your bone adjusts and creates more red blood cells. And in fact, your body is engineered such that depending on where you're at and the oxygen content around you, your body can produce ten times as many red blood cells as others. It's that regulated. Folks, this is an amazing thing. To sit back and say, well, we're just an accident of creation. It isn't wonderful how we got here. People are ignorant. Yeah. They gave me two pints of blood the other day after my surgery and the difference in the way I felt yeah. If you don't have the right amount of red blood cells or you got anemia or something like that, you die. You die. What, what, what makes leukemia so devastating is that it kills the, the blood producing marrow in your bones and you die. You die. And I thought the bone was just, you know, this big hard hunk of calcium. It's a living thing. It's an amazing thing. Bone is how it can be healed and how, how you're actually your body creates or destroys bone cells. If you need calcium, it'll destroy bone cells. If you have too much calcium, it'll build bone cells. Amazing thing. Concerning how science says you know, that the earth is X billion years old, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, it's because on, on the, at the time of creation, <coughs> It wasn't the egg, it was the chicken. At the time of yeah. creation, it was the adult form. Therefore, if a geologist, first day a tree was created, looked into you know, the what they do, they would determine X number of years. If they looked in the ground and yep. found coal, X number of thousands of years. Gold, X number of millions or whatever. Mm-hmm. Because... It was created in an adult form, so science measuring some aspect of nature, therefore coming up with an age, is the wrong approach because it was created as an adult. Right. 
So if you ever want to know, if somebody asks you, what did you learn in class today? You say, the chicken came first. The chicken came first. God created things in an adult form. And God created the universe with a parent age. He can do that, right? Right. It's no problem. At at least the the geologist, or in this case it wouldn't be a geologist, it would have been a physician, Mm -hmm. would say it was 30 years old because that was roughly the age of Adam and Eve. Yeah, he's been here for 30 years. Well, no, he just was created. God, immediate creation. And, and here's the thing. There are evidences for a young earth. You understand that. You know, we see that and say, most, most Christians say, well, I guess earth has been here billions of years. No, it hasn't. There's evidences for a young earth. There's evidence for this. There's evidence for a global flood. It's not like it's not there and we try to make stuff up. It's there. Look at the, look at the buildup of the Mississippi River Delta. If we've been here for millions and millions of years, the Gulf of Mexico would have been filled up by now. Because we can we can measure how much silt goes in there, it would have filled up the Me- it, Gulf of Mexico been filled up, but it's not. It's not been here for. They can measure it's been here only a couple thousand years, a few thousand years. The same with the Nile Delta, the same with the Amazon Delta. You can you can measure how long those river systems have been in existence, and it's not been billions and billions of years. It's been thousands. There's evidences for that. All right, um, we don't have time to go into all of that, but. But we're not making this up. This is not something that we're just, well, we don't like evolution, so we just got to come up with something else. There are evidences for, reasonable evidences for a young earth. And when you look at the complexity of the human body, or even the complexity of the most, you take an amoeba and you look at the complexity of that amoeba, it is beyond science to figure out how it works. There are things in the cell that they don't know how it works. It just does. It's an amazing thing. The, the smallest cell in your body is an amazing chemical factory. And how it works is, they don't even comprehend that. And not only that, but something about your DNA, the encoded information in DNA, where did that information come from? I mean, it's one thing to say the chemicals came together, but what encoded that information in just the right order to so it could self-replicate and make the various proteins that your body needs in order to live? It was programmed in. No. Yeah, you got this little Golgi apparatus in your cell, and they can't figure out how it works. But it does. And if it didn't work, you couldn't produce the proteins that you need to live. You'd die. Your cells would die. Where did that come from? Where did the information come from? And some say, well, you know, what happens is, you know, you got this evolution where you've got this constant little bit of improvement along the way. You know, you get improved. That's not true. Yeah. Uh, I think most No. And, and I, essentially reading this book on anatomy, so many places say, well, we just don't know how this works. But it does. We can't figure it out. We don't understand. Now, we've been able to determine a lot of the chemical processes and things to keep us alive, but by and large, they just don't know why it works the way it does. And some of them, they just say, well, we don't know, but it does. Yeah, you're good. Mm-hmm. And he 
his, his proposal is that not only is there matter and energy in the foundational building blocks of the universe, but there are information systems mm-hmm. right. in the development of the universe. Mm-hmm. And if you have information systems, it means you have to have comprehension thereof in some, at some level, which is important. Yeah. You could take your body and reduplicate it, all the processes, all the, all the you know, physical processes, and there's nobody home. Where did the soul come from? Where did the intelligence come from? But he points to the human genome. Yeah. And basically the genes are information systems. They are, and that's the thing. And they've been able to show that you have common diseases. Like, I think they found the cystic fibrosis gene. And what happens is it's just a flipped pair on the gene chain, flipped amino acids that cause people to have cystic fibrosis. And, and, you know, we look at that and people say, well, you know, what happens is these mutations over time, radiation, you know, you get a mutation and all of a sudden now you have an eyeball instead of an ear. You know, look, folks, that's silliness. That's like taking, I'll tell you what you want, I'll tell you how to prove this, how stupid this is. Take your home PC and go in and randomly change one of the bits in the operating system and see if you get a new program. You know what's going to happen? You're going to get a blue screen. It's not going to work. That's a, and by the way, the, you know, the, the most complex operating system put together by humanity today is infinitely less complex than your genes and your cells. They know sort of how it works, but they don't know why it works and why you're shaped the way you are. That's all God. God created all of that. So what does the Bible say? Let's go back and see what the Bible says. Well, the Bible says that God created man on what? The sixth day of creation. Now, let me say this. There are some that say, well, the days of creation, they're actually geological years. Geological eras. Millions of years. Because God uses evolution over millions of years to create. What does the Bible say? It says six days. D-A-Y, six days. And I am a six-day creationist, just so you know. I believe in six literal days. And we're going to talk about why that's the case. God created everything in six days. Why did he take six days? Well, that's the way he decided to create it. Ask him. I don't know. He could have spoken it all into existence at once, couldn't he? But he took six days. And at the end of every day, what did he say? It was very good. So there's no blemish of sin. There was no blemish of corruption. There's no blemish of decay in the original creation by God. If God is an infinite God of holiness and order and goodness, He's not going to create something bad out of the gate, is He? No. Actually, He said for the first five days it was good, and on the sixth day it was Very good. Very good. So, how do we know that it's a literal six-day creation? Well, if you, it's indicated by a clear reading of the Hebrew language. You just read the text. And what does it say? Day one, day two, day three, day four. So you just read that without any preconceptions, without any presuppositions, and guess what? You come up with six days. It's indicated by the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11. Why did God put genealogies in there saying somebody lived so many years and then they begat so-and-so and they lived so many years? Why that information? You can trace age. And you come back and when you do that, 
you find that the flood came in the year 1652 from the day of Adam's creation. 1652 years later, the flood came. And that was somewhere around ballpark figure of the year 2400 B.C. Now, what do we know about 2400 B.C.? Any historians in here? Archaeologists? That's sort of the beginning of recorded history. You realize that? Somewhere around 2400 B.C. is where our first written records of recorded history. That's sort of interesting, isn't it? Alright, so that means somewhere around 4000 B.C., somewhere, give or take a few years, is when God created the universe in six literal days. But it gives us actual dates. It says Adam lived so many years, begat Seth. Seth lived so many years, begat Enos, and on it goes, all the way down to Noah. And then it goes beyond that into Abraham. We even know how many years after the creation, Abraham was born. Um, it's indicated by Moses as Sinai. What does that mean? Well, God, remember when God gave the law? He said, in six days I created the heavens and the earth, so on the seventh day you're to do what? Those are not eons of time. God did not say, you know, I, it took me seven eons of time, so you, get to, you take, get to take a year off. It was a day, right? And this is interesting. Look at all of the world calendars. What is the universal unit of measurement? Weeks. Throughout weeks. Everybody has seven days. There might be an exception hither and beyond, but by and large, all societies have this unit of seven days. Where did that come from? Why seven? I mean, it would be better to have ten, right? You've got ten fingers. Unless the guy that came up with it only had seven fingers. No, you have... It's an odd number. Seven doesn't fit very well into any you know, lunar cycle or any... It doesn't really fit well into a lunar cycle. It doesn't fit into a yearly cycle. Why seven days? God created it that way. It's His number. It's his number. And it's the number of perfection. It's the number of perfection. Well, I said this before, but um, where is the war in heaven and the... Because the, um, the war in heaven... It comes after the seventh day of creation. Huh? It comes after the seventh day of creation. No, that's that's not true. No, no, that's not true. That's a pardon. No, that's 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 a theory that. Yeah, that's not true. That's not true. I know where that comes. That comes from C.I. Schofield, the gap theory. That that's not true. God created the world in six literal days. And by the way, the dinosaurs were part of that creation, and there were dinosaurs on Noah's ark. They were little ones, but they were there. All right, and I'm going to get Marshall to do that. that that'll be a good study for you. Um, it's indicated by David. David talks about six days of creation. Jesus said the earth six days, and he spoke of a literal Adam and a literal Eve. All right, now either he was mistaken, right, or he was right. It's indicated by Paul. I mean, there are references throughout the Bible on six days, days of creation. The Bible knows nothing of these long geological eons of time. To the Bible, it's always a day of creation. Now, some have argued that when you look at day in the Bible, yom, that could mean an indeterminate period of time. You're like, well, that'll be the day. Well, are you talking about the 24-hour day? In that statement, no. 
Um, and there, there are certain references in the Bible where day seems to indicate a period of time. And so immediately what the, the people do is they jump on this. Oh, well, it just means, you know, the first day of creation, that could have been a long period of time. And God could have used the processes of evolution during that day, that eon, or however long that was, to do the creation. This is called the framework theory. It's a fancy word. It's called framework, or it's called the day-age theory. And uh, if you're, anybody reads anything by Hugh Ross, <coughs> Hugh Ross buys into this. He's a Christian apologist, and he believes in the day-age theory. He also denies the universal flood. All right? And what it does is says, well, all, Genesis 1 is sort of a metaphorical picture of creation. It's not meant to be taken scientific. It's not meant to be literal. It's just a metaphorical picture. And Adam and Eve were sort of metaphors of the first human beings. They were not real persons. The problem is, when you look at the Hebrew text and you look at the genealogy, it says Adam lived how many years? So many years and he begat Seth. That's not a metaphor. And Christ spoke of Adam and Eve as being real persons. He did not speak of them in terms of metaphors, as, as archetype human beings. They were literal people that lived. There's no indication of any of this being metaphorical. Yeah. Yes. It means it's it's predominant meaning. It's like our day. When we talk of day, think it's probably more like our day. Normally, when we speak of day, what are we talking about? Twenty-four hour period. All right. There are metaphorical uses of day, like that'll be the day. Well, that's not a twenty-four hour period. That's an indeterminate period of time. They're trying to skew it that way. All right? But there are reasons why you shouldn't be doing that. And I have 14 of them or 16 of them or I forget the number. And I, by the way, I did a research paper on this when I was in college, so this is one of my little projects. When you look through the, the Bible and you see day, yom, used throughout the, the Old Testament and New Testament, and you have an ordinal number, what does that mean? What do you mean by ordinal number? What is an ordinal number? First, second, third. Sequential number. Whenever you have day with a sequential number, like first, second, third, fourth, it universally means a 24-hour period of time. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day. All right? It always means that. It, it, it always refers to that. It never refers to anything other than that. Okay. Second reason, the usage of evening and morning. Evening and morning, day one. How does a geological age of indeterminate period of time have an evening and a morning? Doesn't make any sense, right? And, and again, this goes back to the, the Holy Spirit could have said it if he wanted to, hermeneutic, remember that? Why would the Holy Spirit say something in a very clear term that if he meant something totally different? Why would he confuse us? Why would he try to steer us wrong? I mean, when you look at Genesis chapter 1, let's turn there. When you look at Genesis chapter 1, let's read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there was a guy back in the early, late, late part of the 1800s that came up with 
a theory of science, and he said all that we know is categorizable into five different things. And let's see if I can remember them. Space, time, energy, force, and matter. All that's knowable can be categorized in one of those five buckets. Well, what do you have in Genesis 1? In the beginning, what's that? Time. God, what's that? Force. Created, what's that? Action. The heavens, what's that? Space. The earth, what's that? Matter. So Genesis 1 has all five categories right there. Genesis 1. Force, action, matter, space, and time. Hmm? Space, time, energy, force, matter. Yeah, I think that's it. Well, time is in the beginning. Yeah. That's action. Energy is God, or force is God. Created action, heaven, space, earth, matter. Now, now you've got to understand something here. And one of the things that bothers, and we talk about this in the Doctrine of God class, we think of time, we think, it, you know, how can God exist forever? Because we start rolling, you know, the calendar back, don't we, in our mind? Well, the latest theories of the universe, as postulated by Stephen Hawking, who may or may not be right, indicates that time is a byproduct of the existence of matter. Do you know that? Time is a byproduct of the existence of matter. No matter, no time. So before there was matter, before anything existed, was there time? No, God created time along with the universe. And that's why God is eternal. He exists outside the boundaries of time and space and, and all that is. God's not subject to time as we know it. And in the beginning, God... In the beginning of what? In the beginning of time. And the Bible uses that again and again, before time began. When it talks about election, it says we were chosen before time began. Well, what existed before time began? Well, not time, right? It wouldn't make any sense to say that time existed before time began. God created it. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when He created it, it was first of all created without form. What does that mean? Well, He created the matter. He created the stuff that the world is created from. And then what did He do in the next six days? Well, He formed it. He formed it. said the earth was without form and void. Tohu wabohu, the Hebrew formless and void it didn't have any order to it it was just the matter and so what did God do well God said let there be light and there was what's light well we think well how can there be light if there's no sun well that's a duh right we know that we know there can be light without sun don't we what is light light is the energy of the universe it's it's there it doesn't need stars and moons and suns to produce it it's there what did God do? God created the light of the universe. And how long did it take Him to do that? An eon? Just let there be. And God saw that light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness He called night, and there was evening and morning, day one. Hebrew letter says evening and morning, one day. So how long did it take God to create the universe, all that is in it, and create light and dark? One day. 
Not an eon of time, not billions of years, just one day. He's an infinite God, infinite power. He doesn't need to create things in eons of time. And then, and then what happens on the second day? And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse. What's that? The atmosphere. God created an atmosphere and separated the waters. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day, day two. God separated and created an atmosphere, created what we see as our atmosphere around us. And then what happened on the third day? He gathered the waters together and made dry land. And he saw that it was good. Day three, God created dry land. Day four, God created all the plant life. Right? Created all the plants. And then day five, what did he create? The sun, the moon, the stars. Two great lights to rule. And it says, oh, by the way, he also made the stars. Sort of aside, oh, excuse me, that was the fourth day. He created the stars. And then what did he create on the fifth day? The fishes, the birds. Sixth day he created land animals and humanity. How long did it take him to do this? One day. Evening and morning, day one. An interesting thing here, we're going to look at this. Well, let's just go through our numbers here. And if I don't, didn't say it, I'll do it. If God is omnipotent, which He is, what does it mean by omnipotent? When we say God is omnipotent, what does that mean? He can do anything consistent with what? His nature, His character, what He is. God can't make a rock so big He can't lift it because that would be stupid and God is not stupid. Alright? So anything consistent with God's nature He can do. God cannot sin, right? That doesn't mean He's not omnipotent. It's just that that's inconsistent with His nature. He can't do something inconsistent with what He is, but He can do anything else. So if you have an infinite God with infinite power, He doesn't need eons of time to do anything. He can speak it into existence and power it's there. It's so like building your house one nail at a time over a period of a hundred years. That's silly. God can do it in an instant. God doesn't need eons of time. The Bible says God rested on the seventh day. What did it do? Did God take an eon off? Did He take a geological age off and do nothing? That doesn't make any sense, right? And by the way, when God created Adam on the end of this day, He said it was good. God rested the seventh. And then we have the account of the fall of Adam. How long did Adam live? Did he live a geological age? Through the geological age of the seventh? And then fall in the eighth day? That doesn't make any sense. It only makes sense if these are 24-hour periods of time. Other than that, it doesn't make any sense. It, does, it, it makes nonsense. You don't need geological ages. Seven days of the work week that we have, almost universally, is a measure of time in human society. Along with the day of rest was founded on the creation, according to Exodus 20.11. In six days I created the heavens and the earth, rest the seventh. I rested the seventh. So it shall be for you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. God created us that way. The near universal acceptance and usage of the seven-day week going back thousands of years in many different human cultures and traditions. All over the world, there's this concept of a seven-day week. Where did that come from? Creation. 
It was built in. The Alpha, the Omega, in, in the Alpha, he was the day one light. Yeah. In the Omega, he is the... There's light. no sun or moon in the new heavens and new earth where Christ That's is right. the light. Revelation 22, of it. Right. That's him. Yeah. There's nothing in the Genesis, text of Genesis 1 that would lead anyone to think of these as anything but 24-hour periods of time. You have to do all kinds of backflips, handsprings, and gyrations to make it mean something other than a day. It doesn't, the, the context does not allow you to do that. You have to force it on the text. And this is interesting. The evolution of plants during the third age would be impossible since the sun and moon were created during the fourth age. So where did the plants get the light that they need in order to survive? You're saying they existed for a whole geological age. The entire plant system that we have was created on day four, or day three, the sun, moon, and stars were created on day four, so where did the plants get the light for photosynthesis? And better yet, since the insects came along on day five, how did they cross-pollinate themselves? makes perfect sense if they were just hung and hang around for a day, right? They can handle a day without light. They can't handle a geological age without light. It makes no sense. The, the, the creation is out of order. Number nine, I just mentioned it. How could they exist without pollinization? I mean, that's one of the key things for plants. Cross-pollination. You need the insects to pollinate them. It's a system that God created. Well, He can do that if the plants are on day three and the insects are on day five, but if you have a period of several million years in between, the plants are going to have a rough time making it. The existence of liquid water. Think about that. If the sun was not there, the heat of the sun, what kept the water liquid for a geological age? It'd freeze. If you take away the sun very before long, the earth would freeze solid. Now, it can handle a day, right? It can't handle a geological age without the sun. God created it as a system. doesn't make any sense. The sun, moon, and star, the sun and moon created on day four to rule over the day and night to separate light from darkness. A clear reference to what? 24-hour day. The sun was used to separate light from darkness. Well, what do we talk about? Sunrise, sunset, the moon comes up, the moon goes down. That's all 24-hour periods of time. The sun did not rise for a geological age and set at the geological age. Makes no sense. God rested the seventh. What did he do? Take an age off? An indeterminate period of time to rest? No, he took a day off. And by the way, understand, this was not because he was exhausted. This is like you, you know, when you, when, you, when you got a massive home project and you finally get it done and you sit down on that completed deck, maybe for you it's because you're tired out, but you sit down and you enjoy it. It's done. The project is done. I can enjoy that which I have made. That's what God is doing. It's not that God needed to rest because His energy was low. He ceased from His created activity and enjoyed that which He made. Took pleasure in it. That's the idea of rest. Death, the engine of evolution, did not exist prior to the fall. How do you know that? Romans chapter 5. Sin entered the world and death by sin. Death entered the world through sin. Prior to Adam's fall, there was no death, hence no engine of evolution. Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day, lived through the seventh and fell later. They did not live for a geological age of time. How do you know that? We have his genealogy. 
We know how long Adam lived before Seth was born. It wasn't a geological age of two million years. It's more like a hundred and some odd years. 130. She, she knows. She's got it all mapped out. She did it. If God wanted us to understand the seven days of creation as long periods of time, He could have said so. He didn't. Every piece of evidence in the Bible, every statement in the Bible, every, every grammatical construct says 24-hour day. No geological age. So what are we to understand? Where did you come from? God created you. In a sense of God created Adam and Eve. Adult people, the chicken did come first. He created them as adults. He created them with the ability to communicate out of the gate. Adam did not have to spend a few years in school learning how to talk. God built that in from day one. And God can do that because He's infinite. You don't need evolution. The Bible says we were created by God. And because of that, we are special. And we're going to talk about that next week, our nature. What makes us different than a monkey and a dog and a cat? There's something that makes us different. And we're going to hit that next week when we talk about the nature of man. So, I actually got through this. I'm amazed. But, you know, and, and again, this is just scratching the surface, folks. I mean, you could delve into it. You could take a whole 13-week class on special creation. I didn't get into that. But there are evidences for it. So, let's close in prayer. Father, thanks so much for this gorgeous day again. And um, thank you, Father, that you've created us. And not only have you created us, you told us how we were created. You didn't leave us to wonder where we came from. And because of that, we have a special place in your heart. And I just thank you for that. And thank you for this opportunity we've had to study in Christ's name. Amen.